Behind my office chair at the newspaper where I work is a large poster portrait of Emiliano Zapata. The Mexican revolutionary's hard eyes gaze out over the snowdrift of papers on my desk. His magnificent mustache bristling, haloed by his massive sombrero, a bandolier of cartridges across his chest. Most folks who come into my office don't pay too much attention to him. Those who do often mistake him for Pancho Villa. Occasionally, though, someone asks who he was and why he's there. And he's there because I admire him. We're calling this series the Mexican Game of Thrones because the Mexican Revolution devolved into a decade of cataclysmically bloody fighting over who would sit in the presidential chair in Mexico City. Emiliano Zapata, though, he was not fighting to put anyone, least of all himself, on a throne. Leader of an organic campesino revolt in the state of Morelos, just south of Mexico City, he fought for one thing, and one thing only. As an old Zapatista veteran expressed it, Zapata fought so that the poor people could have land, not for the fucking politicians. The revolution had different causes and played out in different ways in different regions of Mexico. For decades prior to 1910, the owners of big sugar plantations, haciendas, wielding major political clout in Mexico City, had been encroaching on the land and water of the farmers of Morelos. The topic, climate, ecology, and economy of Morelos was very different from Pascual Orozco or Pancho Villa's Chihuahua. The people of Morelos, largely of Indian descent, had farmed communally for centuries. Under tremendous economic and political pressure, at the beginning of the 20th century, they were losing their way of life and their independence. Zapata, who had become a leader in his home village of Ananquilco, began to push back. And when Francisco Madero's armed resistance to the 30-year-old dictatorial regime of Porfirio Diaz broke out, he joined the revolutionary cause, hoping that a new regime would bring land reform. That was always what it was about for Zapata. It always came back down to the land. Tierra y libertad, land and liberty. Zapata proved a very capable tactician of revolutionary guerrilla war. He had a full complement of the masculine virtues that his culture and community prized. He was an ace horseman who performed in local rodeos, a crack shot, and a man who took no crap from anyone, especially political jefes who enabled the stealing of his people's land. Zapata came out of a tradition of resistance. Back in the 1860s, with the United States distracted by the Civil War, the French essentially invaded Mexico and took over, which sparked a very intense war of resistance, which in turn led to many years of civil war and rebellion, which ended when Porfirio Diaz took over the presidency in 1876. Zapata's biographer, Paul Hart, 
recounts, Emiliano Zapata was born into a poor but esteemed family where both sides took part in the resistance to the French and supported Diaz's rebellion. Born before television, radio, or other external diversions, evening entertainment in the countryside revolved around storytelling when the workday was done. Emiliano would have grown up listening to the grown men of the village, including his family members, tell stories of fighting bandits, defending their pueblos, ridding the country of the French, and winning the civil wars. As he grew, the boy learned how to ride horses and handle weapons from men who knew what they were doing. Zapata had undeniable charisma, which shoots out like lightning from century-old photographs. He was picturesque, even more so than Pancho Villa. As one of his comrades described him, General Zapata's dress until his death was a charro outfit, tight-fitting black cashmere pants with silver buttons, a broad charro hat, a fine linen shirt or jacket, a scarf around his neck, boots of a single piece, a Mozoquena-style spurs, and a pistol at his belt. Biographer Samuel Brunk notes, His charro posture struck a chord, maybe because it seemed a mark of competence, or at least of the ability and willingness to take charge. Perhaps equally important, Zapata was a likable man. He often participated loudly in a good joke. He had a way of making a soldier feel significant by remembering his name, though he had met him only once before, or by pulling him aside by his shirt to entrust him with an urgent commission. At least during the first years of the revolt, when he had money or food to spare, he often gave it personally rather than sending it out through some revolutionary bureaucracy. Accompanied only by a small staff, Zapata was constantly on the move, from place to place and from one guerrilla band to another, keeping in touch with his followers and demonstrating that he shared with them the difficulties of a revolutionary life. Women, apparently, found him impossible to resist, and he sure didn't try to resist them. It is believed that Zapata fathered 16 children with nine different women, and there may have been more. He was, however, an absent father. From 1909 on, he was increasingly embroiled in land disputes and the increasingly volatile politics that came with them. Initially, the fight involved legal petitions, not bullets, and Zapata worked his way through title deeds dating back to the Spanish conquest to establish village claims to disputed land. He and his people pressed for state and federal intervention to honor their titles, but that was never going to happen, not in Diaz's Mexico. Plainly biased in favor of wealthy plantation owners, the government slow-rolled the redress of grievances. Eventually, the villagers simply armed themselves and took over the land in dispute. Zapata was not the main leader of this movement, but he was an important and effective force. Once the revolution broke out in earnest, Zapata was quickly thrust to the fore and became the leader of the Liberating Army of the South. He would snatch occasional quiet moments in Morelos over the next decade, but he would never again be just a cowboy enjoying the rodeo, a cockfight, a few drinks, a cigar, and a woman. 
He was now and forever el hombre, the man. He was a quintessential popular leader, a folk hero, during his own lifetime. The people under my command obey me out of affection, not out of subordination, he said. It was true, and it's a noble thing, but it also placed tremendous burdens on his personal leadership to hold his movement together. When the 1910 revolution triumphed, it immediately became apparent that the interim president, Francisco de la Barra, and the elected Madero regime were going to do nothing for land reform and for justice for his people. Madero seemed to believe that a change in political leadership was all that was needed to put Mexico on the right track. And he was much more concerned about placating the middle classes and the remnants of the old regime than he was about the plight of the indigenous peasantry. He was a hacendado himself, so he he took a dim view of breaking up the big operations and giving land back to small-scale communal farmers. He considered that regressive. Truly, Madero and his clique thought that Zapata and his people were barbarians standing in the way of progress. So Zapata fought against this new federal government. And he kept fighting against this faction and that, slandered by whatever new revolutionary establishment became ascendant as a bandit, until he was lured into an ambush by federal troops at a hacienda named Chinameca, in 1919 and died in a hail of gunfire. Zapatismo, his movement, based around the belief that the land should belong to the people that worked it, failed. But it left a mark. It's no accident that when a rebellion broke out in Chiapas, Mexico in the 1990s, the rebels called themselves Zapatistas. It was the only revolutionary tradition in Mexico that offered a coherent and sincere program of justice and sovereignty to the people that worked the land. Because of his advocacy for communal landholding and because many of the intellectuals who served as administrators in his movement were socialists, Zapata is usually slotted into the left side of the 20th century political spectrum. It's not inaccurate, but it's an imprecise fit, because while much of his program resonates with the values of the left, Zapata was a traditionalist and a regionalist, very leery of centralized state power in anybody's hands. And thus, other revolutionaries and other movements of the left thought that he was regressive. Zapata considered communism, which took root in Russia in its own revolution at this time, impractical and kind of an affront to his own entrepreneurial spirit. Of course, it wasn't until later that it became apparent that it was also history's greatest perpetrator of state terror. Part of the reason he was perceived as regressive was that, though he was not personally religious, Zapata opposed the pretty vicious anti-clericalism that characterized the Mexican Revolution and his army fought under the banner of the Virgin of Guadalupe. You might say that he was a natural proponent of subsidiarity, the, the 
political principle that decisions should be made at the most immediate and local level possible. Zapata is credited with two statements, which may be apocryphal, that really define the measure of the man and and resonate with any lover of liberty. It is better to die on your feet than live on your knees. And I want to die a slave to principles and not to men. You'll notice that death loomed in both of those statements. Zapata clearly knew very well that he would not survive the revolution to retire to the country living that he loved. Whether he actually said those things or not, and there's good reason to believe that he actually did, he certainly lived out the meaning of those proclamations, never compromising his principles for political or social status, and never bending the knee to force and terror. That's why Emiliano Zapata hangs on my office wall. That's why he's closing this podcast series on the Mexican Game of Thrones. Emiliano Zapata is a hero, and the world needs him. In the next episode, we'll delve into the difficult and ultimately tragic arc of Zapata's revolutionary story. From triumph to disillusionment and betrayal, to brief triumph again, followed by a precipitous decline to destruction. It's a brutal tale. Zapatista territory in the states of Morelos, Guerrero, and Puebla were subjected to state terrorism and ethnic cleansing on a scale that resembles other 20th century horror shows. The insurgency lacked an outside source of arms, always a fatal flaw, and Zapata's own temperament and desires made it impossible for the movement to project power in the national arena, which ensured that other factions of the revolution would gain ascendancy and ultimately seek to crush him. But this is an inspiring tale, too, because Zapata remained true to himself and to his people. He was no revolutionary saint, which is the way he's often depicted in some of the iconic Mexican revolutionary art. He was an hombre, a badass frontier partisan. And he was, in my estimation, the purest of all the Mexican revolutionaries. A couple of new scouts have joined the brigade. So let's welcome Josh Buchanan and John Sweet to the campfire. Certainly appreciate your support. As well as Hawk and Horse, Bridger Larson, Matthew Campbell, Larry Richardson, Bob Buckholz, Ash, Harry Kaiser, Mike MacGyver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Bob Dice, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnally, El Randolito, Christopher West, Matthew Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwertfeger. If you're interested in throwing down a few clues to support the Frontier Partisans podcast and, and the blog, the, uh, the link's in the show notes. 
and we'll see you down the trail.